0: Let's pray as we stand. Lord, the hymn sets before us uh, a vision of uh, our own personal and corporate future. And we ask that with these words from Revelation, you would so reveal Jesus Christ to us, that we we may be personally encouraged and corporately determined To see this future come to pass. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit and find, if you would, uh, Revelation 18. It's actually part of a a little um, grouping of chapters uh, that follow... um, within the, uh, this cartoon. It's like a movie cartoon, really, a uh, revelation. Uh, and uh, the seventh angel has poured out its bowl in uh, chapter 16, and everything to do with Babylon then unfolds in chapters uh, 17, uh, which shows lots of the kind of the, uh, the spiritual background to what's going on. Then in chapter 18, the collapse of Babylon, and then as we heard, In chapter 19, the beginning of the rejoicings over the collapse of Babylon. And really, because as you can tell just from the numbers, we're moving towards the end of the book. Uh, We're getting to the the heart of things. Revelation is not so much this happened, then this, then this, then this. It's more like a series of concentric circles in which everything is described at once and then again, but from a different perspective. And then again. And with these chapters, we're coming now to the very heart of things. And all that has been personal earlier on in the, uh, in the, letter, in the book uh, is, is now very much corporate. We've got a corporate picture of sin uh, in Babylon. And we've got a corporate picture of God's praise. So I want to begin by looking at, at sin as this uh, section of Revelation uh, sets it out for us. God's hatred of Babylon is not just because she's sinful, but because she's involved in what you might think of as the heart of sin, the very, the very centre, the very essence of sin. Jesus said to his disciples, according to Luke chapter 17, things that cause people to sin are bound to come but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. He didn't mean children by little ones, but one of these these people who don't have choices in life, the the humble in status. Well, by the time... uh, John is writing down his vision of revelation. He is quite clear. he drops loads of heavy hints that uh, Babylon, uh, the, the enemy that used to be in the life of the people of God, Babylon is, in fact Rome. Uh, according to uh, chapter 17 and verse nine, uh, Rome sits <coughs> sorry, Babylon sits on seven hills. Rome, if you've been there, you may know even if you haven't been there, Rome famously sits on seven hills. And in the time of John, it is Rome that has seduced the nations into believing in her own invincibility, her own eternity. It's not the lapse from a particular law that upsets God so much as seeing people come to believe that it is Roman law that applies everywhere and not divine law. Romans tried to replace God. And it was actually a deliberate policy of the Roman Empire. As it went, was simply to to take over the local religion and to kind of substitute the Roman uh, gods. Or or, if not to substitute them, then to kind of pull them into the, the circuit of the Roman gods. And so, uh, that's why you get, in chapter 19, um, I'll choose chapter 19 for the moment for today, verse 2, you get this language of the prostitute. It's come up earlier in the earlier chapters, but that's why it's there. Because it's around the use of what could have been good, but for improper purposes. God's not against empires as such, but he's against empires when they start to forget who God is. It's around the use of what could have been good for improper purposes. Uh, Take a look uh, for a moment at verse uh, verse 19 of chapter 18. Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Babylon was famous for its uh, status as a trade city. Rome, even more so. The the Roman Empire shoveled trade into Rome. It needed vast amounts of just stuff to keep the Roman Empire going. And it came in and went out through Rome itself. And it is an empire. It sits over what was considered to be all the earth. So, verse 23 of chapter 18. Your merchants were the world's great men. Or again, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 19, he's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. This, this reaches out into the effect of the influence of Rome or Babylon, reaches out into every corner of the world. Uh, in chapter 17, particularly the description of Babylon is of a woman dressed in purple and scarlet with precious stones, holding a cup and uh, drinking and getting involved in Roman-type excess. And it was known at the time of John that the Empress Messalina was a great, uh, great one for, for clubbing. Uh, she went in, she uh, ran her own uh, clubs and orgies and was renowned across the empire. Uh, And John regards it as an abomination that power should be used like this. It speaks this language of the excess in chapter 17, of prostitution in chapter 19. It speaks of the sexualization of a public culture, the assumption of self-centeredness, that uh, I can do what I want. If I want something, I reach out and I take it. That's the approach of Babylon, of Rome. And the story that these chapters have told is that uh, it has been bad in the past, says John, for Christians. It's not so bad now. But he's warning them, it's going to get bad again and it's going to be worse than ever. But then the end will come. Then the overthrow will happen and Rome will be obliterated. It's going to happen in ways that will surprise you because God's purposes are going to be fulfilled uh, not by uh, obvious means. Just look at the end, uh, if you've got the cha- page open, uh, uh, of, uh, of chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. I'm not going to go into all the, you can look at it later if you want, the, 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 the beast stuff and, and what have you. But basically, uh, Rome is not going to be overthrown by uh, God marching in and saying, ta da! But Rome is going to be un- overthrown by a mightier power, which is exactly, of course, uh, what happened. God is going to take power from Rome and give it to someone else. And Rome is going to be uh, overthrown in the process. Now, I'm I'm claiming this is the heart of sin. But it's not just a claim. It's there in the text. Look at verse 7 of uh, chapter 18. In her heart she boasts, I sit As queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. Well, in the uh, book of the prophet Isaiah. It is nice to come back to a country where we say Isaiah instead of Isaiah. Um, uh, Anyway, um, uh, Isaiah uh, uh, chapter 47 and uh, verse 7. Sorry, Shelby. Um, You said, I will continue forever the eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. Now then, listen, you wanton creature, saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. That is said to the city of Babylon by the prophet Isaiah 800 years before Jesus. So when these words are kind of in front of us from the mouth of John, talking about Babylon, Rome uh, in uh, Revelation... the the words are quite consciously echoed. This is the heart of the city that says, I am, and there is none beside me. In her heart, she boasts, I sit as queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. It's never going to come to an end for me. The party is going to go on all day and all night and all day and all night and all day and all night, and it's never going to stop. And the course of these chapters shows that as a prostitute, she's exposed. As a victim of the beast that I mentioned, she actually ends up devoured. And as a city, and that's where we came in today, she is burned. There is absolute desolation, and she is abandoned. Well, so much for Babylon. Um, But this isn't Babylon. This is Norwich. You can't really imagine Norwich featuring, can you, in a biblical narrative at this sort of scale. Um, So who is Babylon, really? Well, John hints quite clearly that it's Rome, the Rome of the empire. And down the generations, Babylon has served as whatever sits at the heart of sin. So for the Protestant reformers, it was Rome again, but this time the Rome of a corrupt church who thought it would just go, the party would go on forever. And the Protestant reformers stood up and said, no, it won't, and your time is over. More importantly, perhaps, the heart of sin is in me and you. I prepared this, and then this morning I heard Lord Sachs, the chief rabbi on the radio, reflecting on 22 years as chief rabbi. He said uh, in his interview this morning that uh, marriage and family and trust were, for him, the key issue that had come out of those 22 years. And while the government couldn't do everything, it really could do something. What it should do is plan, uh, set up uh, a process Whereas a society we could plan 25 years forward and ask, what kind of society do we want to be? And I listened to him and I thought, that's five parliaments away. How many of you care what some committee said in 1988? Of course you don't. And we can't possibly begin to think about what Uh, what social life we might want 25 years from now. Because whether we like it or not, we're in a democracy. And the trend is absolutely clear that parliament by parliament, people are voting for one thing socially. They're voting for more rights to do what they want to do. They don't want to think about society. If you take if we live in a democracy with every person having one vote, then every person's going to use that vote for themselves. They're not going to use their vote for society. We know that because we, we know about sin. We want to say, each one of us, I am, and there is none beside me. Scale that up, and yes, it becomes bestial. It isn't just Herod. Every generation sacrifices its children and we're no better. Think of the children that never made it to the light of day. And justice is coming for the children and the abused and all those who are sacrificed. The judgment, dirges are taken up in chapter 18 by kings and merchants, and we joined it at the dirge of the traders. <clears throat> the music of harpists and musicians will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. And the roar comes up in reply from God's people. "Hallelujah! Let it be so. Well, it may be that there are those in uh, church this morning who want to say that they feel uneasy about this hallelujah, about this sense of Christians rejoicing in judgment. And one of the questions that comes to Christians often enough is, who are you to judge? We say, but God is the one in judgment. And the reply comes, yes, but what about you? And the reply, of course, is that, yes, I know God's judgment. The grace of God has simply met me in judgment a little early and told me what I need to do about it. So, yes, it's not that we judge. It is that God judges, and we are simply the people who know God's judgment and have thrown ourselves on his mercy. So judgment should not seem arrogant, because it is not our judgment. But we acknowledge the one whose judgment it is. And then some may say that God seems unfair after all. In verse 3, I think it is, yes, verse 3 of chapter 19, again they shouted, Alleluia, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the question immediately has to be asked, well, what does this mean about eternal punishment forever and ever? What is this judgment that goes on forever and ever? Well, this is picture language, but it does seem that eternal display, at least, the smoke going up forever and ever, is needed. The only logic in favor of saying that punishment comes to an end is the reasonable logic that the timeline of God is not the timeline of ourselves. We can trust God for his judgment because the judgment of God is made known to us literally like his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who took the judgment. This is not a timeline. And I want before we finish just to deal with one or two things that come up around the whole book of Revelation. Um, I, I've men- mentioned uh, our daughter already, uh, but I know that when our son David was growing up, um, Revelation was absolutely, when he it was about eight or nine, it was absolutely his favourite book um, because it's got all kind of blood and guts and uh, fire and smoke and horror in it. And it seems to me that we forget how, how good a book Revelation is. How, how much it can serve our purposes of destroying that picture of a meek and mild Jesus who wouldn't say boo to a goose. It can be a very useful book, but what can we use it for? Well, it's not a timeline, because it goes back and forth. It's not a precise code, uh, because it shifts. It's more like a dream, uh, sort of uh, a long-range uh, picture, and then a short-range picture. And it is written primarily, and this is what matters, for the comfort of the churches. I was glad that Lewis, a moment ago, prayed for our brothers and sisters who are suffering in uh, the Muslim world at the moment, especially in Egypt and in Syria. I happen to have a slight acquaintance with uh, the bishop, uh, the Anglican bishop in Egypt. Uh, Don't forget there are Anglican churches in Egypt. Um, and he sent out a a message pleading for prayer uh, from the Western Church. Uh, He sent a message out last week because uh, he knows of stones and Molotov cocktails being thrown into churches uh, to blow them up. He knows of uh, a pastor whose car has been set on fire and of Christians themselves being attacked. And in Syria, of course, Christians are being attacked because they are in the way of what, uh, interestingly, uh, everyone in the West seems to support, an Islamic uh, revolution to overthrow President Assad. Uh, and you find yourselves faced with those alternatives. Do you want Assad or do you want an Islamic revolution? Going back to Revelation and saying, well, do, do you want the, the the prostitute or the beast? It seems like a terrible choice. And God's reminder in chapter 17 Verse 17 is very useful. Actually, he is in charge, and he will, uh, what's the phrase, accomplish his purpose. Or think of the women and children of Bukavu in Congo, where there are still a high proportion of Christian believers among those who are suffering rape as a weapon of war. All of them need practical help. But all of those people, whether it's in uh, North Africa or or, or Syria or uh, Congo, what they also need is a good dream. Americans and others are keeping the memorial at the moment of Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. It changed America. But revelation is the dream. It is a vision that has already a number of times changed the world. As people have determined to... Uh, uh, survive and stand up under suffering in order that a better future shall come. It's a dream, not in the sense of something that comes to nothing in the morning, but a dream in the sense of a truth that shall be for those under persecution. That's its real use. And we just need to be very careful just to enter a little word of warning about another use, which has become quite attractive. The, 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 the notion goes that the Bible is either poetry uh, or it's true, literally true and it can't be both. Genesis is a charming but absurd mythical folk story, say some. And others react by saying, "Well, it can't be that, so it must be scientifically true in every particular." Literalism only arises very recently, the 19th century. And as part of a sense that the Bible's defenses, the Bible needs us to defend it. So it must be undertaken by a scientific approach. I can understand some of that. After all, John himself says Babylon symbolizes Rome. But where would that place be today? And it can be twisted into becoming whatever place makes you feel threatened. I can remember when I worked in Belgium. There were those who were convinced that the European Union was the great Satan of Revelation. Whatever institution made the UK feel threatened, that had to be the bad place. But that's not the point, because it makes sin into a problem that other people are projecting onto us. Or well, think of the enemies mentioned in Revelation in uh, 1970, going back a long way, a man called Hal Lindsey wrote in Countdown to Armageddon that the final enemies depicted in Revelation were the Soviets. But then, slightly awkwardly, the Soviet system collapsed. So by 1999, 29 years later, he was saying that actually all along, the final enemy God had had in mind was in fact the Islamic world. It just turns it into a code for whatever is making me feel threatened. And it plays fast and loose with interpretation. No one is actually, of course, saying that it really is modern Babylon that constitutes the great danger. Modern Babylon is practically destroyed. It's just a heap of stones. But this stuff matters when we do consider the Middle East and those who want to uh, over-interpret what what Revelation is about. If Revelation says that Israel is going to be rescued and flourished, then there'll be those who say, well, that immediately must equate to the... The uh, civil post-1948 uh, state of Israel. So we must ensure that no concessions are made to the Palestinians. Doesn't matter if they're Christian; they're Palestinian. It means we can take their land. They're only ancient denominations, so they're not proper Christians anyway. These pictures are always going on behind the world as we see it. But it is about Egypt and Syria. And Bukavu, and everywhere where there is real persecution of Christians. Not we feel a bit under stress in the UK because we can't wear a cross, but real persecution. And the good news is that it will end. And actually, even if we are just a bit stressed and things do get tougher in the UK, we can find comfort there. It will end in Egypt or Syria or wherever else it may be. Those other theologies are very attractive because evil is over there. It's all very exciting. And it means I don't have to face evil working more closely at hand. I don't have to think, is my government, which is terribly British and upstanding and therefore jolly good, is my government wrapped up in this evil web? Well, of course it is, because evil begins in here. And I voted. So did you. Evil begins in my heart and yours, and we are those who vote for the terribly upstanding British government that we've got. I stand under judgment unless and until I recognize that all this judgment has already fallen on Jerusalem, on a little hill outside Jerusalem where a man died. Christ of God, the Lamb who has suffered and who has taken the judgment onto himself. And that's why those who chose the reading, it wasn't me, uh, care, were careful to take it through to the point where it says, the wedding of the Lamb has come, Hallelujah, the good stuff has started. Imagine how awful, how truly awful the book of Revelation would be if there were no figure with the two-edged sword from his mouth. Even if it were about the ending of Babylon, but there was no bride, no wedding, no feast. If it was all judgment and torment, but no singing and no praise. In the face of revelation, our task is not to come we're up with obscure knowledge of how things are going to work out politically, over there, wherever there may be. It is to preach the Lamb, who is the one hope that the judgment will be dealt with. Because it has fallen on him, and we have accepted his judgment upon ourselves as it has fallen on him. For the heart of sin in Babylon is exactly the sin of my own heart, what this is doing is kind of like shining a, uh, a light through a lens of your heart and mine to show you and me what our sin is really like. Our one hope is to preach the Lamb because the heart of sin is exactly the sin of my own heart and yours. And the heart of God's judgment on Babylon is exactly the judgment of God on my heart. Let's not be distracted by the nonsense that gets talked about Revelation, but let's use it for what it is, to repent, to serve those who are desperately persecuted and need our help as our brothers and sisters, and to praise the Lamb and to preach him, whether that's in Babylon or Bothorpe, among the nations, or in Norwich. Let's pray. Lord, we have already prayed for those in intense persecution at the moment. But we particularly choose to remember now that they are our brothers and sisters. As close to us in the blood of the Lamb, as are those we call brothers and sisters in our family blood. Lord, we repent of our involvement in a society that looks far too much like Babylon. And we ask that you would move our hearts so to preach the Lamb of God, that men and women and boys and girls would turn to him and know that the judgment has fallen on Christ, and so each one enter into his grace to avoid the terrible judgment that must otherwise come and will come, so that one day we too will be among those who sing Hallelujah. Amen.